0: This is History 605, where we talk about everything from Crazy Horse to Cyberspace. Welcome to History 605. Today we have with us Sandy Bernard as an author whose special focus his whole life has been on uh, George Custer, the Plains Indian Wars, and the Frontier Army. He has done several projects for the National Park Service, and edited the newsletter, The Greasy Grass, or the annual magazine, The Greasy Grass, of the Custer Battlefield Historical Museum Association. Uh, Certainly George Armstrong Custer is most famous for his dramatic death in a ferocious battle in June of 1876 against the Lakota and Cheyenne. But the man's life was larger than that fateful day, and so today uh, Sandy Bernard is on the show with us to discuss his new book, George Armstrong Custer, A Military Life, published recently by South Dakota Historical Society Press. Thanks for joining us on History 605 today. And I'm wondering if you could begin by asking, uh, what are the myths that you've had to contend with about Custer the man? Not the battles necessarily, but as this is a biography, what are the common notions about him that are just plain mistaken?
1: As with most human beings, George Custer was both a positive individual and a negative individual. He had his flaws, of course. And somehow, by being defeated in his last battle, uh, losing his a good part of his command and all, uh, and, in fact, losing that battle against Native Americans, that battle has tended to dominate his historical record in his career uh, as if he were some kind of a fool. And that's really not the case, especially when you look at the man for his entire career. He was... Uh, one of the the best generals actually as a cavalry officer during the civil war and even though he graduated last in his class Mm -hmm. uh, that didn't really matter once a man is on the battlefield Um, I was thinking of this just the other day when the major leagues uh, teams drafted all those players and some went very high in the draft and I noticed that the Boston Red Sox the other day signed two kids Mm -hmm. who weren't even drafted. Uh, They have just as much of a chance of making the major leagues as uh, the kids who were drafted in in the top ten. And so the same thing was basically true with the officers uh, who came out of West Point in that era. Custer may have finished last, but he was among the best of the officers who graduated from West Point in
0: 1861. Okay, so his, his class graduates uh, just as the war is beginning, or actually his class was kind of truncated, right, in timeline? Weren't they graduated early?
1: Uh, it was supposed to be a five-year class, but with the war breaking out, the military academies sped things up, and so mm-hmm. there were actually two classes that graduated in 1861, and his was the second. I see. They, the, the expanding Union Army needed uh, second
0: lieutenants. Yes. So he goes into the Union Army um, serving alongside and opposite many former classmates. Uh, What's his first few jobs, and how does he rise so quickly?
1: He he was one of those people who, uh, in some respects, never served as a company-grade officer, that is, leading a platoon Mm -hmm. or leading uh, a company. Uh, he ended up uh, working for a series of, of very prominent generals, Philip Kearney first, and then uh, George McCullen, of course, was the commander of the Army of the Potomac. Uh, he went on to then uh, serve with uh, General Alfred Pleasanton, and it was Pleasanton in 1863, just before Gettysburg, who would elevate uh, Custer to Brigadier General, primarily because Custer had proved himself as a staff officer. In fact, he often on the battlefield, even though he was a staff officer, would lead troops uh, in the charge. And so he impressed every one of his uh, officers that he had worked with, senior officers. Mm -hmm. And so it really isn't surprising that uh, when Pleasanton took over the the cavalry force for the Army of the Potomac in June of 1863, that he chose Custer uh, among several officers for the rank of brigadier general and to lead brigades.
0: So how old is he then when he becomes a brigadier general?
1: He's among the youngest in the Army at that point. Right. He's only about 23 years old. And uh, in, in my own life, I like to note that uh, at age 23, I, too, was an Army captain. Uh, but I uh, didn't rise to brigadier general.
0: <laughs> right. Uh, so... Uh, at Cavalry Brigade, how many troops is that that this 23-year-old is in uh, charge of?
1: At Gettysburg, he had about 2,200 to 2,500 men under him, uh-huh. and uh, uh, that that was an imposing force. The Michigan Cavalry Brigade that he right. was now commanding, in fact, would uh, become one of the most elite units of the Army of the Potomac, and then he would go on to lead the as a major general, the, uh, about a year and a half later, he would lead the 3rd Cavalry Division, which also prospered under his command.
0: Right. So the, during his uh, Civil War service, you think about the turnover in Union leadership. It's a constant. And as we're—he gets this job just, as a, just before Gettysburg is about to happen, um, the commander of the Union— The entirety of the Union force is brand new into his job, just as Gettysburg is about to happen. Um, Of course, General Lee on the other side is very comfortable in his position uh, and has been doing that job since the uh, more or less since the outset of the war. Kind of set the scene for what Gettysburg, uh, how it occurs, and briefly, and then what it means to us today that uh, the Union won that battle.
1: many respects, the the fact that the battle occurred at Gettysburg is uh, simply uh, just a happenstance. Uh, mm-hmm. the troops just happened to, to meet there. They perhaps could have met any place uh, the, in terms of where they were maneuvering. Uh, Lee had decided that he would take the war into the north, mm-hmm. and uh, so he was uh, had moved his troops across uh, out of Virginia and uh, across the Potomac into uh, Maryland, and then had uh, gone into uh, Pennsylvania. And uh, he, in fact, he was m- missing his cavalry force under General Jeb Stuart at that point, so he was kind of uh, going forward blinded. Uh, in the meantime, General Meade had just uh, been named as the commander of the Army of the Potomac, mm-hmm. and so he hustled to gather his forces. And so they, too, moved toward where they thought that the uh, Confederates would be, and that was going to be, by more coincidence than than planning, at uh, the small town of Gettysburg. Mm -hmm. Fester, in the meantime, had just taken over as commander of the uh, uh, Michigan Cavalry Brigade, and uh, he had been ordered by his uh, general to... uh, do several different things, one we in Huntersville, uh, one at Hanover. And uh, at Huntersville, he almost found himself killed. Mm-hmm. He had led an attack and then was unhorsed, and an uh, enlisted man saved him from being killed. And uh, therefore, we will go on to develop the legend. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, at Hanover, he had fought well uh, and uh, against the troops of Jeb Stewart as they too were maneuvering, trying to find uh, Lee. Uh, But the the real uh, uh, impressive uh, battle that Custer will engage in will be what has become known as East Calvary Field. Mm. And uh, it happens on the third day, July 3rd, of of the Battle of Gettysburg. Uh, The Confederate forces amassed to charge across from uh, Seminary Ridge to uh, Cemetery Ridge. And at, in the so-called Pickett's Charge. In the meantime, uh, uh, the, the Cavalry force under Stewart is going to try to come around from the rear and disrupt the Union force, and uh, General John Gregg has his troops and Custer has been attached to Gregg's force for the time being. Actually, Custer was recalled to go rejoin his general, Kirkpatrick, because of the pending uh, attack by the Confederates at East Calgary Field, Custer stays put. And there's a large uh, back-and-forth uh, battle, uh, several different charges by both sides. Mm-hmm. And at least twice, Custer uh, grabs the command of a specific unit and gives the order, come on, you Wolverines, and he leads the attack against the Confederate force. Eventually, the Confederates will melt away. Uh, it's basically a draw, but in the sense that uh, it's a victory for the Union because uh, Stuart was not able to disrupt the activities on the battlefield elsewhere as the infantry forces were colliding. Right. And Fesser is not the only one who deserves uh, praise for East Cavalry Field, but given that he's rather flamboyant, and all uh, you know, people certainly focus on him because of that, and uh, it was a dynamic day for him.
0: Right. They didn't know it at the time, but Gettysburg proves to be a turning point in the war, kind of the, the phrase, the high-water mark of the Confederacy. What, after the battle, what does Custer go on and do?
1: Well, he's involved with There's a, a long, slow campaign as the Confederates retreat into Virginia, mm-hmm. and Custer is heavily involved. Uh, in that particular effort. Uh, there's no one final battle there that, that it's eventually make their way across the Potomac back into Virginia. Uh, and, and during the fall, Custer will be involved in several different campaigns. In September, he will actually be wounded at the Battle of Culpeper mm. and will take some leave. Uh, it will be really in 1864 that he has his... Uh, next true opportunities to gather uh, battle uh, scars and and battle victories, uh, as there's a long campaign beginning in May, uh, where the two forces are colliding in a series of engagements. In the meantime, General Sheridan has replaced General Pleasanton, and that will begin a relationship between uh, Sheridan and Custer that will last until Custer's death. Right, uh, But there are any number of battles across the uh, spring and summer of 1864 where the Michigan Cavalry Brigade uh, uh, fights r- remarkably well time after time. Uh, at one battle, Trevilian Station, in, on June 11th of 1864, uh, it's oftentimes referred to as Custer's first last stand. He mm. uh, saw a Confederate wagon train. He sought to uh, seize it. In the meantime, the Confederates surrounded him. And uh, in an, another book that I did about uh, Lieutenant Edward Granger, an aide to Custer, Granger describes uh, to, in great detail how Custer was responsible for the for the Mission Cavalry Brigade uh, holding its own until they were rescued. But as I said, the battle is oftentimes referred to as Custer's first, last Mm -hmm. Um, And But throughout uh, May, June, July, and August into September, uh, the Michigan Cavalry Brigade uh, is a vaunted force.
0: Yes. Well, and his rise culminates, actually, in his—isn't he present at Appomattox when uh, Lee surrenders his armies?
1: Uh, He's not in the room. Always uh, oh, painting room. that showed him in the room uh he he actually uh did receive uh one of the surrender flags okay uh, but uh, you know uh, he was not uh, part of the uh, group that uh, met to discuss the terms of surrender okay. he was nearby with the third in that point he was a divisional commander okay and uh uh, so he was nearby with his division, standing um, ready to fight if, if
0: that proved necessary, again, but which it did not, of course. Well, with, with a person's rise so quickly, and at such a young age, doesn't happen without its controversy, and I imagine he made some enemies within the Army. Um, what did Grant think of him?
1: Well, at the time, uh, Grant thought well of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was no reason for him. Not to. I mean, Custer was a general mm-hmm.
2: uh,
1: who delivered victory after victory. Mm-hmm. Uh, at one point, in a letter to his sister, Lieutenant Granger refers to Custer as one of the fighting generals. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone that uh, we read too much, uh, too much, and see too too little. Mm-hmm. And yeah, uh, you know, so Custer had no. Uh, I should say Grant had no reason to uh, frown on Custer during the Civil War. It's later that Custer begins to uh, take some steps that will lead to problems uh, ultimately with the president. Mm -hmm. Uh, Very early, for example, uh, he is – after the war has actually ended, but there are Confederate forces still at large in Texas. He is dispatched to Texas Mm -hmm. with a makeshift division and uh, takes some action against some of the volunteer troops who wanted to go home. And uh, those actions are uh, frowned upon by the uh, army command, including Grant. Okay. So that probably didn't endear him to Grant at that point. Whether that was a factor later is, you know, speculative. Here. Yeah. But.
0: Sure. Um, You mentioned the Black Hills. Let's backtrack a little bit. He has this expedition in 1874 uh, in the Black Hills. I wonder if you can share what that was about and kind of the impact of that. that, What were the results of that expedition for for South Dakotans today?
1: Well, uh, earlier you asked me about myths, and uh, one of the myths that involves uh, Custer is focused on the Black Hills. Mm -hmm not as if Custer opened the Black Hills. The whites were going into the Black Hills and had been doing so for Mm -hmm. decades. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Treaty of 1868, Fort Laramie Treaty, had uh, guaranteed the uh, Black Hills to the Native Americans, uh, but uh, there were rumors of gold there. Uh, The army under the treaty was authorized to have posts it could actually patrol through the Black Hills. Mm-hmm. That's where part of the myth comes. It's as if Tuster suddenly decided one day to go look for gold in the Black Hills. Right. He was given a command. He was ordered to go into the Black Hills, and uh, you know he was there legally. Uh, actually, in that particular case, he did not engage anyone, but he did explore it, and his stories that came back, as well as stories from others, about the Black Hills, suggested that there was gold there. And that did set off the Black Hills gold rush. And uh, that really opened the door to 1876 because the Indians were now insulted that the whites were trying to take the Black Hills from them. Mm-hmm. There were actually negotiations between the two sides that failed. Mm-hmm. and uh, But that didn't stop the Grant administration from deciding that uh, action should be taken. And so in uh, late 1875, they would uh, order the Indians to return to the reservations, but the Indians themselves had the rights to be there. Right. And uh, it was also wintertime, so of course they could not and did not return to the several reservations that had been established. And uh, in early February, the orders went forth to direct the army to uh, go force the Indians to return, to uh, leave the Black Hills and leave uh, the extended reservation out west. Well, and But again, Custer yeah. himself was following orders.
0: Right. It's difficult for us today to understand the meaning of gold in the economy. Uh, when the dollar is based on gold, it's essentially the source of all currency. And so when more gold is found, or in some way, added to the economy. Uh, In 1873, there's a uh, severe recession hits hits the United States. So, I think from Grant's point of view, he's trying to solve uh, a a recession. And there's a place that's got gold in it. And there's this pesky treaty (laughs) standing in the way. And um, so he's trying to maneuver uh, a different deal um it it seems to me, but and ultimately then of course uh, the lakota the cheyenne they they don't wanna negotiate a new treaty; they like the one they had, and so that begins the campaign for what becomes of of which the battle of the Little Bighorn is a part. I wonder if you could kind of paint a verbal picture for the listeners on the three prongs of the campaign and what was the point of the of the battle of the little Bighorn
1: well, the as I had said earlier, the orders had gone forth uh, that for the, to the army to force the, tr- the Indians to return to the reservations. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether that was a lawful order and all we can debate that today and it's still debated today of course. Um, but uh, the officers to the officers of that period it was a lawful order and so uh, there are th- several men involved in carrying that out. All of whom were Civil War veterans. Uh, Colonel John Gibbon is going to come from Fort Ellis uh, from the west in Montana, uh, Montana territory, mm-hmm. and uh, with a force. Uh, General George Crook, who is uh, acknowledged as one of the better Indian fighters, is at Fort Fetterman in Wyoming territory, and he's going to move north. And then uh, originally, Custer was going to leave what is called the Dakota Column from Fort Lincoln. Uh, across the Missouri River at uh, Bismarck. And uh, because of the uh, political fighting, the impeachment uh, of the Secretary of War and all, Belknap, uh, Custer will uh, get in trouble with the uh, president, as we talked earlier, Mm -hmm. and fortunately will be reinstated to command his regiment, uh, General Alfred Terry, another Civil War veteran and hero, will lead the Dakota Column. Uh, The plans are rather speculative. There is no one solid uh, plan for them to meet at a particular point in a particular time. Mm -hmm. They're, They're all kind of on their own. If they happen to run into one another, more power to them, but that's not part of the plan. So Kirk moves first, and in March of 1876, some of his troops under Colonel uh, uh, Joseph Reynolds will attack the combined village at uh, the Powder River. It will be a victory for the army initially, and then the uh, warriors will retake the village. Reynolds will suffer the loss of his career later by virtue of a court martial, um, but because of his failure to uh, retain the village, uh, Crook, uh, will then go back uh, and re- uh, resupply for the first time in the campaign. Uh, John Gibbon will come forth and will actually maneuver throughout uh, Montana Territory and will actually run into the Indians now and again, but not. he can't seem to force them to battle. Mm-hmm. And he, he doesn't really keep the rest of the Army informed of, as to what he is seeing. That is, there are growing numbers of Indians. Finally, in May, uh, the Dakota column under Terry will set forth from Fort Lincoln. It was delayed by winter storms, and of course, Custer is leading his, his Seventh Cavalry. And in in June, they will actually run into Gibbon, and uh, uh, and they will begin to formulate some plans. Uh, the, the, there is a uh, scout. A mission under uh, Major uh, Marcus Reno, uh, who is sent out to try to find the Indian trail and see which direction they were going. And the rest of the troops, including Custer, kind of sit tight while that's going on. Unknown to the Army, to to uh, Terry and to Custer and to Gibbon, is that Kirk has now come back into the field. Uh, mm-hmm. He has about 1,500 soldiers and civilians, as well as uh, Indian scouts. Mm-hmm. And he's making his way north, and he's uh, take stops on June 17th at the uh, Rosebud for coffee. And in the meantime, here comes Crazy Horse with about 1,000 warriors. Mm-hmm. And this was kind of unheard of on the plains, that the Indians would attack that larger force. Mm-hmm. And there's an all-day battle, the Battle of the Rosebud. Um, There's a very good book on that battle now, uh, written by Paul Hedren. But uh, the fight goes on all day. It is basically a draw. Uh, Crook still retains the field because the Indians withdraw, so he claims a victory, but it was basically uh, a draw. And to the Indians' credit, Crook decides he shot up too much of his ammunition, so he's headed back to right. Day, uh, Sheridan to resupply. And he doesn't tell anyone about what has befallen him, that the warriors are much more aggressive, much more numerous, yeah, and that he himself has now taken himself off, off the trail. Yeah. And so Custer doesn't know that. This is eight days before Custer himself will uh, run into the Indians at Little Bighorn.
0: Well, it's it's quite a campaign filled with complexity and so forth, and of course the enemy gets a vote. And here it's folks like uh, Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull, very effective and practiced warriors. Um, what can you tell us about their motivations at that time that Custer assumed away? If you can, if you can understand where I'm going with that question, he uh, you've mentioned it a little bit about how the the. Um, crook might have been surprised that uh, there was such a large force that was so willing to fight in fact attack him uh, what is the going assumption that custer has as he's proceeding through with his column about uh, the nature of, of what the, the indians are thinking
1: Oops. sorry for stepping yeah. on your tongue here. Sure. <laughs> uh, all of the troops uh, uh, all of the leaders i should say have expected that the indians will follow their normal path that is in the face of large numbers of soldiers, they will not stand and fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why Crook was surprised when here came some one thousand warriors attacking him that mm-hmm. that should never happen. That's not in the book. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, but he doesn't communicate that information, as I said, to the other officers. And so they they expect maybe five hundred, maybe a thousand warriors would be. Uh, what they would face uh, and instead there has been a a steady outward flow of warriors and families into, away from the reservations and into the wilderness to join up with the the uh, war the Indians who are under sitting bull Mm -hmm. and other tribal leaders the village that will eventually gather on the little Bighorn by June 25th will be a very large one mm-hmm. and uh, it could have had as many as uh, 1500 to 2,500 warriors and as many as perhaps 7500 to 10,000 people okay uh, it would be one of the largest towns in uh, Montana if it existed today right. <laughs> and uh, but the the soldiers do not know this. And uh, when Reno makes his scout, he does discover signs that there are a lot more uh, tent poles and the like headed west. Mm -hmm. And he does report that information. But again, it doesn't really uh, worry uh, Terry and the others because uh, they do not expect the Indians to stand and fight. Mm -hmm. Um, And so Custer is then sent forth to go up the Rosebud, looking for the Indians uh, with the idea that they could all meet on June 26th. That's not really a firm plan. That's another myth of Little Bighorn is that Custer was definitely going to be in place at a certain time, and Terry was coming and mm-hmm. at a certain time, and they would catch the village. And uh, yes, there would be a battle uh, at a time and place that had now been designated. Uh, that wasn't quite what the plan said. Uh, Terry himself, with the given force, moves west along the Yellowstone and will eventually come up the Bighorn. And uh, Custer is now moving up the Rosebud. And there are signs that there are a lot of Indians ahead. He has the word from his scouts that uh, he will face more than he might have anticipated. He's still not worried. The Army is used to fighting Indians somewhat by this time. And uh, a a, a large force doesn't necessarily mean trouble, but um, Custer needs to know where they are. And so he's planning on June 25th to sit tight and locate them. Mm -hmm. But other signs indicate that maybe his force has been discovered, Mm -hmm. and uh, he decides that he has to move forward because one of the things the the commanders all fear— is that the warriors, the Indian villages themselves, will disperse. They'll scatter and, and not be able to be relocated. Mm-hmm. And so he doesn't want that to happen. So he then divides his force. That's not unusual. There's another mm-hmm. myth there that Custer should have kept his force together. Uh, he had learned his lesson at the Battle of the Washtar eight years before uh, which was a victory for him. He had divided his force into four different units, and uh, it worked for the most part, except that a couple of the unit subunits didn't get into place quickly enough. Uh, but other commanders, uh, notably Ronald McKenzie at the Palo Duro Canyon, had attacked Indian forces with just several hundred troops, while the warriors may have numbered 1,500, and he too won. So, it's not something that is unusual in terms of the way the army fought at the time. Uh, it's not unusual for them to be unfazed by the number of warriors they could face. So, mm-hmm. he tells Captain Benteen to go to the southwest just in case there are uh, Indian camps farther up the uh, Little Bighorn. Uh, that's what happened to Custer at the Washita. There were other villages downstream of the Washita. Mm-hmm. Uh, he keeps Reno and uh, the other troops under Reno with him, and they head forth down the Rosebud. And then at one point, they think the Indians are now breaking. And so he orders Major Reno to attack, uh, and he will be supported. Mm-hmm. To cut discredit, he doesn't tell Reno exactly what that means. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, was he going to follow Reno into the village from behind Reno or from some other direction? Well, it turns out it must have been from some other direction because he himself goes north along the bluffs, and Reno finds himself alone in the valley, and suddenly there are far more warriors than anybody expected, mm-hmm. and those warriors begin to close in you know, along his skirmish line, force him to scatter into the what's called the timber, and eventually forced them, flushed them from the timber and forced them The point of too scattered, yeah, and cannot hold against the, the significant number of warriors who are now infiltrating around him,
0: right? You know, as you drive west on I 90, you drive right past that battlefield, it's rather striking to see the hill and uh, the terrain around there. Um, when he comes up over the ridge. Um, and sees the numbers that he's really contending with now, uh, is it at that point where he has to drop all his assumptions and realize, oh, there's more than I thought, and perhaps they will stand and fight? Uh, or is, what do you think, having studied this battle and this man for so long, uh, when did he sense that other calamity was about to occur?
1: One of the uh, most fun projects I uh, have been involved with. In in with regard to the Little binker and was in the 90s with two other uh, historians, Jim Brust and Brian Pohanka. And uh, Brian is now deceased, but he had a great mind for uh, not only the Indian Wars, but for other military actions. And he was of the opinion that Custer himself never was phased by any of this. Mm-hmm. And as I, in my last two books, including the Granger book and and now the Custer biography itself, one of the things I've come away from uh, with doing the research and writing is that Custer, one of his strengths is that he did not fear death. Men who are going into combat uh, worry about that for the most part. But Custer himself had no fear. Mm Mm-hmm. He was not motivated in a negative fashion uh, by the fear that he might lose, that he might die.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so when he came over the, the ridge uh, for the first time and, and observed how large the village actually was, he, he actually probably thought, now I can attack and force them to surrender and yeah. go back to the reservation. Right. He believed that he, even with his small force, could force the action, and it's only on last Dan Hill begins to probably realize that's not going to happen. The force that he sent to the river is repulsed. Mm-hmm. The forces under Lieutenant Calhoun back at Calhoun Ridge are now falling. Mm-hmm. Captain Keogh's uh, company was in reserve, and it too is falling. Mm-hmm. And at that moment, when I think Custer realizes that the jig is up. Right. Uh, yeah. But prior to that, uh, and this is something Brian Blahanker used to make clear too, that Custer was always on the offense. And if you think back to the Granger account of Trevilian Station, uh, what he shows Custer doing at that time is constantly in motion. hmm he was not defeated until he was defeated. Right. And he kept fighting and fighting and fighting. And of course at the at Trillion Station, relief forces did reach him. Mm-hmm. At Little Bighorn they did not. Right. Uh, he had recalled Benteen and Benteen only made it as far as Reno, his position on the bluffs. Mm-hmm. The two men had gone forward. But for whatever reason, they didn't go beyond what's called Weir Point. And, um, right. you know, so Custer's—and, of course, Terry was too far up the, the Bighorn yet to come to his rescue. And Custer lost because nobody rescued him, hmm. uh, you know, <laughs> from his, his own mistakes. And that that.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> Given the people at the time, you know, a lot of people adored him, a lot of people loved him. He was a, a national celebrity of the day. Uh, a lot of people hated him. A lot of people inside the Army hated him. Um, how do you proceed from that as a historian, then, to kind of sift through the sources of who loves him, who respects him, who hates him, and make sense of what the truth might be?
1: The the Army of that period had strange uh, rules for promotions, uh, unlike today, mm-hmm. Um and so, therefore, there was a lot of backbiting you know, at the time. And so somebody who was truly successful uh, may inc- have incurred the wrath of his, his brother officers. Hester um, wasn't so much hated, I think, in, in one respect, but people were jealous of his success. Right. And— uh, you know, but even Custer himself uh, could not advance any faster than anyone else. When the army was expanded in 1866, he was able to go from being uh, a regular army captain again to a lieutenant colonel. That was yeah. partly based on his war record, but he stayed there. He had to wait. Yeah. The only way you got promoted in those days was for a man to die or retire. Mm-hmm. And uh, Custer was still down the list, even at the time of his death, and uh, and so there were a lot of people, therefore, who were who were uh, jealous of him. And I I think that at the time that that jealousy was uh, rather superficial. I think only in in across the almost 145 years since the battle uh, have people formulated these ideas that uh, he wasn't liked and that uh, the people mm. were out to get him and, and all. For the most part, that that's not true. Okay. Custer was simply another officer in the military. And mm-hmm. uh, you know the idea that he, for example, woke up one morning on June 25th and decided to go out and shoot some Indians is what you can hear from people, mm-hmm. but that's not the case. He was there because the U.S. Army and the Grant Administration put him there. Right.
0: I think that's one point that comes out in your book is that he is very much a soldier following orders, doing his job, and uh, he's just kind of – he looks at things in a very utilitarian way. Would you say right. that? Yeah.
1: And, uh, yeah, the the discussions of the last several days of about General Milley with regard to Trump and whether Trump might pull a coup uh, are interesting because he proved himself once again in this case to be as Milley did. To be a soldier, right? someone who uh, uh, was responsible, basically, to upholding the Constitution. And I don't know why people historically have decided that Custer was more than that. He was no homicidal maniac. right? Yeah, he had a, 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 a desire for flamboyancy. Yep. Uh, he was ambitious. Yep. I worked 30 years in the, uh, in the academic world, and there's nothing more ambitious than a college professor. you know i mean right and it's you know even when i was teaching i would tell my students you don't go into an interview and when they ask you where you want to be in 10 years well you'd like to start at the bottom and go down right right the the proper answer is (laughs) you want to be dean or president someday
0: (laughs) right well, I usually like to end, end these interviews with. Uh, so, what's the best question? You you animate the book about uh, with questions about Custer. What would you uh, kind of along the lines of what you were just saying? What would you tell uh, readers or students about the best question and is useful from learning about Custer's life for applying to our situation today?
1: Well, Custer. I guess that that's a hard question to answer because. What happens with Custer uh, is that uh, he finds himself stuck in our our modern era. In fact, I have a line in in the book. uh, I often wear a uh, ball cap for showing my Vietnam status, and Mm -hmm. people will come up to me and shake my hand and thank me for uh, serving at the time. Mm -hmm. I've even had a couple of people pick up my checks. (laughs) I've <laughs> been to me, right? Right, because I was wearing a, a Vietnam ball cap. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like to say, and I have a line in in the book, that Custer and the Seventh Cavalry are still wandering on the plains. Uh, they haven't been invited back home yet, all uh, right And uh, and that's because, of course, they fought a minority mm-hmm. whose rights have been. Uh, under much discussion in our society today, uh, as with most, most minorities. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so Custer gets dismissed basically as uh, an arrogant, militaristic, uh, homicidal maniac who uh, wore a military uniform, and Custer was not that. Mm-hmm. He was somebody who uh, aspired to have a career. Uh, his parents recognized that he was more than just a farm boy, so they – it certainly certain he was well-educated for the times. He went to West Point, became an army officer, and that's what he was on June twenty fifth, 1876. He had sworn an oath to uphold the Constitution like any army officer, and he was doing his duty. Mm-hmm. And uh, that duty today is often tied up with the political question as to whether it was fair on the part of the U.S. government uh, to have sent him there. Right. But that's a different question from who the man Custer was.
0: Right. Well, Sandy, thank you very much, and congratulations on the book. Um, thank you. The Sandy Bernard, author of the recent book, George Armstrong Custer, A Military Life. We appreciate your time and uh, talking with us today, Sandy. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Sure up. Bye. Well, we'd like to thank our sponsor, the South Dakota Historical Society Foundation, and our partner of the 605 podcast, South Dakota Public Broadcasting. But most importantly, we'd like to thank you, our listener to the show. If you enjoyed it, I hope you'll share on social media and tell your friends about us. Now go do some history.